from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sails. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Joining us on this fourth episode of the Ditchley podcast is Brad Setzer, Senior Fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, and Agnes Benassi-Kerré, Professor at the University of Paris. Welcome both of you. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, today in this podcast, we're going to be talking about the macroeconomic implications of low productivity growth. What are the challenges in terms of the measurement of productivity growth and therefore in developing macroeconomic policies to, to address it? Well, I think there is a consensus now to say that, yes, there is a measurement problem for productivity. Most of this measurement problem is not new, actually, and this is not going to explain the slowdown of productivity. So then the question is how to increase productivity growth, because we know this is the core of the increase in income per capita in the long term. And the question is what are the responsibilities of microeconomic factors in the direction of structural structural reforms, the markets, labor market reforms, capital market reforms, and so on, on the one hand. On the other hand, macroeconomic policy, and more specifically, counter-cyclical macroeconomic policies. And here there are two views. One is uh, that it's good uh, to have a crisis because this will eliminate uh, those companies with low productivity, and this will increase uh, productivity growth in the long term. This is the Schumpeterian view. And there is another view, uh, which is more and more popular, showing that, uh, in fact, it's just the opposite. In uh, big prices, you have financial constraints, and those companies that survive are not necessarily those with higher productivity growth. There may be those with more collateral. So real estate, and there's a bias. Uh, now the consensus is more that big crises uh, should be avoided, not only because of the short-term disruption, but also uh, for the sake of uh, long-term productivity growth. Are European governments being too timid in trying to fuel economic growth? Absolutely. I think you know the most obvious failure of European policy has been a failure to maintain sufficient aggregate demand over the course of the last economic cycle. Over the past 10 years, very broadly speaking, the euro area has been able to increase demand by about five percentage points, which is about a half a point per year, which even with a really conservative estimate about uh, the capacity of the economy to generate uh, higher levels of productivity means that demand has failed to keep up with productivity, which means that there generally are underutilized resources in the economy. And it means that generally speaking, there is a, a relatively straightforward policy that should increase output without having to go into uh, the details of reforming a whole lot of the institutions that matter for uh, microeconomic performance, that simply maintaining a higher level of demand through the cycle would generate better outcomes. What can European governments do specifically to boost productivity growth? <laughs> A lot can be done uh, on structural reforms by large. So it includes uh, not only labor market reforms that are generally in the spotlight, um, but also uh, reforms of capital markets to remove uh, all the um, 
biased uh, in investment uh, decisions, the tax bias or regulatory uh, bias. Uh, so to, to, to be sure that capital is, is invested in the most uh, productive activities. And there is also uh, a big issue of education. This is the task of the governments to improve the education attainment of the population and also to train the adults to new jobs. And finally, uh, there is also uh, an issue of mobility. We know that productivity growth takes place in big uh, cities, but uh, the, the population is uh, spread uh, all over the country. And in the large, uh, low-density countries, it may be a challenge uh, to uh, have uh, the labor uh, go to the cities and uh, work in those uh, high productivity growth firms. Uh, so these are issues about housing markets, about transportation, and uh, of course, with the constraints of global warming. So uh, this is a big challenge. So these are the long-term investments in productivity. Then there is this issue of uh, cycles and what the government can do over the cycle. And then I agree that the task of the government is to, to stabilize uh, the activity. Ideas are not cyclical, so you need uh, to have funding for these ideas at any time over the cycle. So this means that capital markets and banks should be able to fund these good ideas at any time. Uh, it has implications for the European level, the banking union, capital market union. And on the fiscal and monetary side, I agree that uh, there was uh, a mistake. The policy, uh, the policy mix was not correct. It was uh, too tight in uh, 2012 and 13, the second dip of the European crisis. I would not say so uh, today, but still, it's, it's true that uh, today there are discussions on uh, the hysteresis effect and the fact that uh, uh, when you have low growth, then uh, progressively you get low uh, potential growth and vice versa. So this reinforces the argument in favor of maintaining aggregate demand of the cycle at a high level. However, there are constraints, especially in the EU. What's the role of central banks' monetary policy in the story in, in boosting productivity? Well, the classical argument is that central banks can't do that much to boost productivity, and that productivity is beyond the remit of a central bank. It's a function of the broader policy mix pursued by the government. I think the more uh, contemporary view is that if the central bank fails to maintain adequate uh, levels of demand in the economy, uh, then there will be less investment, even if microeconomic policy settings are, are good, simply because the most important determinant of firms' willingness to invest is their uh, forecast for future demand for their products. There is also a growing view, and I think it's an important view, that in a world where central banks have been doing the bulk of the heavy lifting to maintain aggregate demand, interest rates in the euro area are zero, real interest rates are below zero, that there are limits to what central banks can do on their own to maintain an adequate level of demand in the economy. And in that context, what would previously be viewed as an inappropriately loose fiscal policy may be an appropriate fiscal policy. So if we need an appropriate fiscal policy, I guess, is Europe and the European Union, the Eurozone in particular, hamstrung by the fact that it's a collection of countries rather than a, a federalist system with, with one political autonomy? Yes, so this is the core of the problem. Um, there is no such thing as a fiscal policy in the EU area. There's a collection of uh, national fiscal policies with uh, national constraints, and it's only by chance that the fiscal stance will correspond to what is necessary uh, for the aggregate uh, cycle. In, in a sense, uh, we are living again the same story 
Uh, that happened uh, a few decades ago with the monetary union. Uh, monetary union can be viewed as an outcome of a failure of coordination of monetary policies. The European monetary system ended in a big uh, crisis and then well, it was decided to move to integration. So integration was a substitute for failed coordination. And today we have a kind of a system of uh, fiscal policies and the coordination of, of which doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So uh, either we uh, move to some form of integration, which cannot be like in big federal countries like uh, the US, it needs to be much uh, more focused on uh, cyclical behavior, or uh, the system is not sustainable because monetary policy cannot do everything. So we need a fiscal policy. And if there is no fiscal policy, then <laughs> there's no stabilization at all. Which countries in the world are, are doing this right? Where, where can Europe learn? That's a hard question. It almost ends up being a political curse to suggest that Europe could learn anything from the United States right now in a context where the United States has erred, I think, in the opposite direction. The U.S. made a decision to raise the fiscal deficit from 3% of GDP ballpark to 5% of GDP at a point in time when all the cyclical indicators in the U.S. suggested greater strength than is observed in the euro area. Uh, so on one level, it's hard to say that Europe should emulate the United States when the U.S. has taken an aggressive fiscal stance uh, too far. On the other hand, it seems to me clear that the euro area is erring in the opposite direction that having a 1% of GDP fiscal deficit when policy interest rates are zero, when inflation is below the ECB's target, uh, when real interest rates, are, at least in the stronger countries, are below zero, and then trying to bring that down so that the fiscal deficit goes to zero over time uh, would create an inappropriately tight fiscal policy. So right now, I don't think any of the major economies has their fiscal settings quite right. Just to add something to that, is the main problem in Europe the German attitude to this question? I think it goes beyond the German attitude. Germany has been the country that not only has uh, brought its budget into balance, but has brought its budget into a substantial surplus. And that surplus, contrary to expectations, keeps growing. Uh, so obviously, the German model and the German desire to export its model has created, contributed to, an overly tight aggregate fiscal stance. At the same time, the broader institutions of the euro area, as Agnes mentioned, aren't well suited to create a, a fiscal stance that is appropriate for the euro area as a whole. You could, in principle, and this would require radical reforms, offset tightness in Germany with a looser fiscal stance uh, in other countries. And the institutions, financial market institutions, but also the institutions for fiscal surveillance, work in the other direction. So I don't think Germany has been particularly helpful but I don't think it is all the responsibility of Germany either. You're, you're nodding your head there, Agnes. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah. Can Germany maintain its attitude that it has and allow Europe to succeed in this area? Well, in Germany, there is this opinion that is very well spread that uh, the only thing you need to do for, to have growth is structural reforms. Once you have the structural reforms, then it's fine. And just forget about uh, fiscal and monetary policy. But uh, I would say that uh, the German surplus is not just a result of uh, fiscal tightening over the last years, but it's also the result of growing savings uh, of the corporate sector. And uh, this is even more than uh, fiscal uh, adjustments. And this has uh, nothing to do with uh, aging. It's just that uh, the share of uh, labor in the value added has been diminishing. 
So there is more uh, given to the to the firms, to profits and capital uh, return, and less uh, to, to the workers. So I think this is inefficient from a German point of view, because normally you save for future consumption. Future consumption of the retirees, fine. But this would correspond to 3% of GDP also of current account surplus. So the rest is just waste because the final goal of a government should be uh, the utility of the, of the citizens. And in the utility of the citizens, a large part of it is consumption. So uh, I think that there is a need uh, for Germany to uh, think about uh, why uh, they, they want such a surplus, why they are happy with such a surplus, which from an analytical point of view is uh, inefficient. One possibility would be that temporary investment is too low and later on investment will pick up, but uh, investment has been low for a long time. And why is it so low with zero interest rate? This is a big puzzle. Uh, why aren't, and here I, uh, I tend to agree with uh, Rad, uh, that uh, the, the reason is that it's, it's future demand. And, but future demand is not there because everybody's saving. The signal that is given to the firm is wrong. So that kind of multiple equilibrium. Can I, just, can I just add there that, uh, you know, in some sense, a high level of corporate savings, which is a, a global phenomena, although it's pronounced in Germany, uh, does have implications for the right stance of fiscal policy. It creates an opportunity, which Germany hasn't chosen to exploit, to run a uh, increased government borrowing to fund higher levels of public investment. And I think that would generate a better overall equilibrium. I don't think you can view, say, that the rise in corporate savings has no implications for broader macroeconomic policy settings. That was the bell, so I would, I'll do one final one before we leave. Would a Eurozone finance minister and a Eurozone budget help the situation? Well, I would keep the Eurozone finance minister um, aside because uh, we already have four or five presidents, or so uh, <laughs> just add another one before you know exactly what's the task and what, the, what are the powers. For the Eurozone budget, there is a big misunderstanding because uh, when you talk uh, with a politician on the budget, he uh, we or she will think about money to spend. Whereas uh, when we economists think about the Eurozone budget, it's for stabilization, it's to help countries when there is a big shock uh, to alleviate uh, the, the damage on the economy. And uh, so most of the time, this will not be spent. When you have focused on this function of stabilization, then the type of institution you need is uh, much different because you are not going to give it to the European Parliament, for instance. Why? Because a member of Parliament will unlikely decide not to spend. Okay, So it's better to have a fund with some rules that could be a subsidiary of the ESM or whatever, also of small size. A very small size would be enough to, to make a difference in big crises, but only if it is spent on uh, during big crises, not during small crises. And to, to stabilize the economy during small crises, I think the Stability and Growth Pact needs to be adapted to give more leeway for national governments. On that note, Brad Setzer and Agnes Benassiker, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.